Hello, it's Jack Tudor here of Attention Magazine. Welcome to Crucial Listening, the podcast where I speak with experimental musicians and sound artists about three albums that are important to them. My guest this time is Richard Chartier, a sound artist based in Los Angeles. I've been speaking to Richard for quite some time. His label, Line, was one of the first labels I ever reached out to with Attention Magazine back in 2011 or something to say, hey, can I review your releases? And I'm so glad I did that. I mean, I'm still listening to and loving Line releases now. The label is so wonderful in its presentation of releases. It's digital only now, actually. It used to be CDs, but... Nonetheless, the releases really justify themselves in the in the digital format and the quality of the audio as well is exquisite. I mean, the artists they bring on are all absolute pioneers of, you know, audio sculpture, I guess. But Richard also does his own work solo, under his own name, and also under the alias Pink Courtesy Phone. And just recently, Pink Courtesy Phone released a new album, on Lawrence English's Room 40 imprint called Indelicate Slices. And it's a dark record. I mean, Pink Hertzy Phone is marked by quite a lavish sound. There's a lot of easy listening samples that have been smeared out across empty space that become these really beautiful, kind of flourishing, unfurling textures. But there's a lot of well, as Richard says, anxiety as we speak in this interview, but a lot of low frequencies curdling in both the audio, but also in my stomach as I listen to this. So it was really great to speak to Richard about the new record, but also about his three albums, which, I mean, he picked some great ones. And we have some great chats about them, and they seem to track a certain lineage of his development as an artist as well, which is really interesting. So... You can check out Richard's work at richardchartier.bandcamp.com and you can check out the label Line at lineimprint.bandcamp.com And without further ado, Richard Chartier on Crucial Listening. Richard, welcome to Crucial Listening. Hi, thank you for having me on. Thank you for joining me. I want to start by asking about your new album on Room 40 called Indelicate Slices. Um, I've been really enjoying listening to that record over the past few weeks. And I understand that there's been a thematic lineage going through the albums that you've released as Pink Curtsy Phone up until this point, with like Elegant and Detached being Beauty and Desire and Ravishment of Mirror being Hollywood Dreams and Deception. So I'm curious as to where Indelicate Slices fits in, if it does at all, into this lineage that you've generated with the album so far. 
Well, they all, yeah, like you said, they all have themes. Um, they're all kind of thematically presented. Uh, and in Delicate Slices is really the only theme I could come up with when I was working on all this, these pieces is anxiety. And it will, really is anxiety about the past year and a half. Uh, political situations, the world, um, just the election, everything that happened afterwards. So, yeah, just this constant being on edge and anxiety. It's pretty dark. It's a dark album. Yeah, there was a, a point where I was working with Lawrence English of Room 40 to, you know, figure out the the track listing and you know, I kept going back and forth, and then there was this one piece. I'm like, oh, this is this. Uh, I can't remember which one it was. It was the, I think it's the first piece, Romantic Threat. And oddly enough, Romantic Threat had too much romance in it, and it was about, yeah, it was about. I think it was about ten minutes longer than it is now, or nine minutes longer. And right now, it's two minutes and fifty something seconds, I think. And um, it was. I basically listened to it. I was like, it's too romantic. I, I, it's too, there's, it's uplifting. There's a, a lightness and a happiness to it that I just, it had to be removed. So it was surgically removed <laughs> from this album. And so now it becomes more of this little tiny compact intro as opposed to this sprawling romance. And that was really, I mean, usually I would make something more for Pink Courtesy Phone more flowery or more elegant or more, you know, beauty, beauty, beauty. But this was just, yeah, it was a strange situation where I cut it out, excised it. It's interesting you say that that was, sounds like the main driver of doing that was through duration and bringing that duration down. And it does seem on this record that you do seem to play with duration quite a bit. I mean, the pieces range from two minutes to like, 24 minutes i think the longest piece yeah i've been i've been trying to do shorter pieces that's also <laughs> it's i mean but it's also hard for me to work small as like short pieces so i'm i'm trying to do more of those just because i'm more interested in what what can i do in this t short time frame that makes it feel just as long as a you know kind of a long uh, durational piece so it's uh it's tricky that's interesting you mentioned there about you trying to make something what have the illusion of being like an extended piece even though it takes place within like a smaller time frame yes well you know it's funny because when i perform live people always say oh why'd you play so such a short uh set and i'll say oh well it was 45 minutes and they're like Oh, I thought it was 15 minutes. <laughs> yeah. That happens a lot. That happens quite a lot. And so I, you know, that's, that's part of it making me think, okay, well, can I make it feel like it's longer <laughs> if it's shorter? Can I make it feel like it's shorter if it's longer? I don't know, you know. So it's, um, it's an exercise. One, one thing that actually really interests me about this record was the accompanying press text, which... I understand you write yourself and it's, it's, yeah. it's interesting because obviously I read so many of those and generally I 
I'm granted a small insight into what I'm about to be listening to. With your press text, it felt like almost the opposite happened. I was a bit bewildered by what I read, but then as soon as I listened to the record, it felt like a a perfect fit. It felt like a really nice articulation, I guess, of... I don't know, there was a grace and discomfort to the way that you worded it that almost enacted the atmosphere of the record rather than giving any kind of useful description going in. I mean, what was what was your thinking by constructing it in that way? That's funny you should bring that up because I hate, hate, hate writing press releases. <laughs> I, also, I also hate reading press releases or proofreading press releases. So the, with the pink courtesy phone stuff, you know, there is subject matter, so there's something for me to, you know, there's a narrative, so there's something for me to grasp onto, but I don't want to necessarily give away everything. So it's more about setting a mood rather than saying, and then I used X software to make this happen. And, you know, yeah. I, I don't know. It's just some press releases that I get. I'm just like, really? <laughs> the, art, the art speak just goes, just, oh, God. <laughs> It kills. It kills me. I mean, it's the same thing. Reading artist statements, you know, not not that saying mine's any less arty, but I think with the with my works, I try to create an environment or a space. So it made sense to make a press release that was, I don't want to say poetic, but it's not. It's not standard. Mm-hmm. It's more just like it's more stream of consciousness kind of thing so it's kind of it's like a a floaty press release that hangs in the air and you read it and you say who's that (laughs) (laughs) i mean that would be great if people you know left after you know left listening to the album like oh what was that (laughs) you know I, i don't know i like things that kind of pull you in and make you think or feel or you know, experience some kind of sensorial event. Yeah, it's happened a few times, actually. People have come up to me when I've reviewed a record that they've been involved in releasing and said, I read your review and I have absolutely no idea what you thought of that particular record. And I, it's nice to get a kick out of that in a way because... I, I like that. Yeah. I'd much, rather read, or I'd much rather read a review of something like that rather than saying, oh, it sounds like x like you know that that's the difficulty with that's a difficulty with writing about sound or music is that we're you know we're very limited into how we can describe things most things are described you know like simile or metaphor like it sounds like a cat meowing (laughs) slowed down you know or or, or whatever (laughs) but yeah i think it's very difficult for to talk about sound. I don't know. It sounds very esoteric. It's just kind of this, I don't know. In a lot of the language becomes very visual and suddenly people are talking about yes. bright things or hard things or, you know, or tactility, you know, things are heavy, things are soft. It's strange that we have to analogize to these senses that I guess do feel more tactile because I guess it's like people worry that as soon as they describe a sound in a certain way that there's, I guess it's very difficult to say, you're hearing it this way as well. Yeah, well, I mean, I guess it's like a synesthesia, you know, a synesthetic reviews. Hmm. That's that's the way for us to go. It's just kind of like where everything, 
all senses are crossed. You mentioned, in fact, that the, it was almost trying to conjure a space or reflect the fact that the music on this new album is a, is a space. And in terms of the environment that you've made with Pink Courtesy Phone, I mean, I've seen references to at least previous albums having a basis in the the horror and isolation of suburban living in the mid-20th century. I mean, does the project still reside within that setting for you? I don't think it's necessarily that it's set in a, a certain period. I think that, you know, the, some of the samples that are used are from that period, but they're not necessarily all from that period. Um, it does extend it, it does extend much further, and I think it's also... You know, it's reflective of what goes on now. It's just that same. There's still that everything is made up. I mean, the the last track on the first album I ever did for Pink Courtesy Phone is called All Made Up. You know, it's a double entendre, like a lot of <laughs> a lot of a lot of the titles of Pink Courtesy Phone. But um, you know, all made up. Everything is made up. This whole idea of perfection is made up. The, the idea of suburbia, you know, pretty little houses, that's all made up. Everything's made up. So I don't think it's necessarily has to be set you know, or, or framed within that. This album, I don't know. I don't think it's necessary. Well, I mean, ultimately, you want your work to be timeless. Mm. So I'm not necessarily, I don't want to say that, you know, this is uh, 1950s. <laughs> yeah. Electronic, uh, you know, or whatever. <laughs> like, play it, play it next to your Eames chair. But <laughs> uh, there's a certain allure from that that period that I have because it's just so false, you know. And Hollywood is just so false, and it's all made up. Smoke and mirrors, you know. Capitalism, that's all made up. <laughs> <laughs> It's all smoke and mirrors. Yeah. I guess it's reflected in the fact that it sounds like you kind of use these samples regardless of what decade they're from, but within the context of a present tense emotional sentiment, right? I mean, they, they still have a penance now. Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, I mean, when I listen to that, you know, music like easy listening stuff from the... 50s and 60s and 70s and stuff like that there's just something about it that i find very fascinating because it is all just so bland yet magical pink courtesy phone bland yet magical <laughs> that's your next press release i so that's my next album or that's the best of i don't know i keep i keep making a, a running list of of titles for Pink Courtesy Phone, uh, and I have a special area for the best of compilation album, if that, you know, when, if that ever happened. So that's a good one. What was it? I already forgot. I already <laughs> forgot what <laughs> Oh, bland, bland and magical. Where does your interest in the theme actually come from? I mean, is it something that is born out of experiences that you've had personally, or...? Something you've just got a fascination with from a distance? Well, it starts from the music, actually, from that time period, because my parents had a lot of that kind of easy listening stuff. Um, that was always played if my parents had, like, a dinner party or something. And I started being interested in buying that type of music because you could always find it at the thrift store. 
uh, or, you know, charity shop or yard sale, a flea market. So I was very into buying stuff like that, mainly for the covers. I was very interested in the covers. They seemed like a, another world to me. So that was always of interest. Uh, I also collect mid-century modern furniture. I used to have a, a little shop in Washington, D.C. So all these things, it's like they all kind of mesh. And, now, and then I think like, you know, the aspect of Martin Denny and Exotica came in when I started listening to Throbbing Gristle and then the references, you know, in their music to that as well. And then reading like in Research Magazine about how they love Martin Denny. And, you know, it, it, I don't know, it's like a perfect little storm. It all made sense. So that's where all that came from. But Pink Courtesy Phone as a project didn't really start until I think 1997. I did the first two pieces, which are actually on the first album in a, a different form. And uh, I was originally going to send those to. Lou Kirby of VVM at VVM Records because I heard uh, I don't know if Caretaker was out at that time I think it I can't remember but anyway I was going to send it to them and then I, I just end up not doing it because my work kind of took a different direction like my work under my own name so that kind of just went away and it wasn't until I started working on that again which was like 2000, 2011, I started working. I found those sound files and started working with them again. So that's how that came back up. But that answer the question, I'm not sure. <laughs> yeah, totally. It's a very broad question. So yeah, absolutely <laughs> it does. I mean, you mentioned... Tell me about your life. <laughs> <laughs> you mentioned there about the fact that your own music under your own name pulled away at a certain point into a different territory. I mean, I'm curious as to how that duality exists for you now between the two projects. What's it like going back and forth between those two projects in terms of the way that you approach, I don't know, working with them? I mean, do they require anything unique to each one in order to exist uh, in terms of the way that you're interacting with that music? Like, I don't know, a different setting or a different mindset? Definitely. It's a very different way of working. That's one of the things I really like about Pink Courtesy Phone and working on Pink Courtesy Phone pieces. It's I allow things to be much more accidental in it. And I'm not trying to remove all the, you know, hiss and the, you know, it, it's very dense. A lot of it can be very dense. And I'm fine with that because I really like, you know, there's a certain thing I like about that because it's very different than if I'm working under as Richard Chartier as me my solo work is very very minimal and has a lot of space and silence and that work takes a lot longer for me hmm. like I'm working on three three albums right now simultaneously under my own name for the past since 2014 like I'm trying to figure them out oh man so I'm very much a perfectionist when it comes to that. And it's very hard for me to say, okay, yes, now this is done. Because that, that's the thing about working on a computer is you can always tweak something. You can always change it a little bit. You know, I, I like that, but it's also, you know, drives me crazy. Also, it's very difficult for me to work on that type of material because I don't necessarily want to 
listen to that. Like I did a piece with uh, Ella, E-L-E-H. Um, I'm always saying it wrong. But um, <laughs> that piece, there was there was a, an hour and something worth, and then we split it into another piece, which is a little bit over two hours. That was really hard to do because it was just so... It's a long time. It's like, you know, it's... Yeah. <laughs> durational listening it's like durational editing and tweaking and you know trying to make it just right like you have to start all the way over at the beginning so i i think that with pink courtesy phone there's a lot more leeway for me to put in a lot of my interests that may not that, that did not appear in my other work because other work is kind of non-narrative, non-referential. Like that's my goal was to kind of be, you know, it is sound. It is just sound. With Pink Courtesy Phone, it becomes much more musical, thematic. Um, it's got a narrative, which is very, very different. So I'm sure there's people that think, oh, it all sounds the same, you know. But <laughs> I think it's, I think it's very, di- I think it's very different. I think it's, you know, I'm also working with vocalists and. Um, so that's been different. I've also done a couple of dan- dancing tracks, yeah. which has been very, you know, it's very unusual. And that, I could not believe how long the piece, the pieces I did with Kid Congo Powers from the Cramps and the Gun Club, and, um, the Cave of Bad Seeds, like how long that took for me to assemble. It was just so complex because my brain just, doesn't work like that. I don't have a dance music brain. I DJ, but I don't have a I don't have a dance music brain like creating it. So it was it's a very strange process for me. But I learned from it. So that's good. <laughs> I do it again. <laughs> you mentioned there about the fact that working with long duration work? Yes obviously takes up a lot of time funnily enough there, but there must be some kind of creative drive that supersedes that what is it that keeps you going with durational work in spite of the fact that there's i don't know i guess in quite a dry sense a lot of admin involved and you know practically <laughs> it's quite quite a long it takes a long time to do well i mean i do i do love creating it and i do think i you know i do get something out of it there is that compulsion to create so there is, you know, there is something in me that, you know, I make this for a reason. Like I feel compelled to create works that I'm attracted to certain types of sounds. You know, I, I would much rather listen to other people's work than my own. And I think that's, that's the only problem with creating really long durational works and, and working on them for so long is that I don't get to listen to other people's music as much. Right. That's one thing, you know, like, oh, I really would like to listen to all this music that, you know, I downloaded, <laughs> that I bought. <laughs> it's just sitting there, you know. Um, but, yeah, I think, there, you know, it, it, it comes in spurts is a horrible word. That sounds really gross. But, you know, it comes in times where it's like, I feel very compelled. I have to work on this. I have to work on this on this particular thing and I can work on it for days and days and days. And then there's just something that's like, okay, I've got to stand back 
from it. I mean, I don't like to listen to my old work. Like I will let, I will let something, like after something comes out, and I've said this before in interviews, it's like, if something comes out, I don't want to listen to it for several months to a year, just because I'm going to pick it apart. You know, because there's always something you could have done. I could have, that could have been a little quieter, a little louder, you know. Yeah. I could have not released that at all. <laughs> it's, 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 you know, the artists attacking themselves kind of thing. Hmm. With these three albums you got in the works, can you see endpoints with any of them on the horizon? Yes, deadlines. That would be the. <laughs> <laughs> that yeah, I think I think they're almost done, but I'm just I'm trying to think of how they all work together. And I think you know, once the pieces are done, it's like how how do they how do they fit together? Which comes first? Mm. What's the order of the tracks? So there's you know there's still a lot of. I mean, an album is like putting a a, a visual exhibit. You know, once you have all the pieces done, then you figure out, okay, how how do you present them within within a space? Because I, I feel like when an album is out, it's like you're 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 taking it and giving it to someone else for them to put it in their space, wherever they may be listening to it. So there's a certain sense of letting go. Like I have to let go of it. Take my baby. <laughs> <laughs> You know, and people will treat it, people will listen to it in the way that they want to listen to it. And I think that's, that's fine. You know, there's a lot of people that say, oh, no, my work has to be listened to in this particular way. And I'm like, no, you can listen to my work in the way that works for the listener. You can't control that. Speaking of ways of listening to the work, I saw actually in an interview about Pink Courtesy Phone, you talked about a hidden code within the project. Has, oh yes. Has anyone figured that out yet? No. <laughs> <laughs> no. I mean, it, it's uh, it, it, it's probably overthought, you know. And I I know what it all is. Yeah. So, I mean, certain a few people have been like, oh, I know, I know what that's from, or I know because it's about it's the the, the samples that are used, the you know whether it's the musical phrases or pieces of audio from film or television the titles in the, of the pieces the titles of the albums uh, thematically so there's clues in around it but it's just my own maybe it's just a message for me <laughs> I, don't, I don't know well, it's fine yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean I always wonder about those where people embed little clues that it must be so difficult to suss out because there has to be that time delay to generate the satisfaction in someone to have actually unlocked it. But yeah, how do you I mean, escape well, your thought, head? I thought about things where you know when it comes out on vinyl, doing those little messages. I, I was used to be obsessed with those little messages on the inner, hmm. the inner rings of of LPs. I forgot what that's called, the run out groove. Yeah, those little messages. Like I was always fascinated. What, what is that? What okay? What does that mean? And I thought about doing that for a couple of these, and I'm like, no, I'm just that's taking it too far. 
I can't, I, can't, I can't get that. I can't go that deep. That's too much. So that's why you won't find any messages on the the, the runout groups. We should talk about some albums, Richard. You've been so yes. kind to put together a list of um, four albums that you deem to be important to. And one question that I like to ask people when they come on the podcast because i think every time i've got a different answer is how you considered the term important and i think there was a i don't know a hint within your email to me when you sent the list over that there was a certain thread that connected these in terms of how they impacted you maybe again now it's me overreaching but i'd love to know how you thought the term important when you're putting this list together well, the, the three or four that I chose are kind of three, three different points of my interest in music and my interest in listening and how I listened and how they shaped me thinking about listening or processing sounds and like what music can also what music can be. That's, that was kind of the three grouping so there's like they're from three different periods of time because hmm. there were a lot I, there were a lot that i was thinking about and i was like oh i don't i don't know which ones <laughs> but the, these these have a kind of magical resonance i guess to me so let's start with the Shall f- we start? first yeah um <laughs> okay if, if you'd like to introduce it and just tell me a bit about why it's important to you as well well the first album is Computer World by Kraftwerk from 1981, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, growing up, my parents had, you know, easy listening records and some disco records and Cheech and Chong and Bill Cosby records, like comedy comedy records, which were kind of weird. And then there were <laughs> then there were two other records that I was very interested in. One was Autobahn. By Kraftwerk, and the other one I I can't remember. I it was either Alpha Centauri or Phaedra by Tangerine Dream. <laughs> so these are so it's a kind of an odd collection of things, and of course I was immediately drawn to the weird things because I was you know a weird kid. So that was actually my first entree into electronic music and Kraftwerk. Um, one of the first records I ever bought was the 12 inch to Tour de France because all the cool kids in junior high school were breakdancing. And that was a, you know, like the hot breakdance track. Wow. That I had to, had to have. So I was like, Oh, that's really neat. You know, I'll buy this instead of trying to save up to buy a, a bright red leather, Michael Jackson jacket. You know, that- <laughs> <laughs> it was that period and everyone had one um, so Kraftwerk Computer World was I think the one I bought right after that but that's the one that really made me go wow this is so cool you know I had been listening to I guess I hadn't been really listening that was kind of really the first electronic music other than the stuff that was in my parents record collection but by that time I was just listening to things on the radio you know like taping it off the radio and just like kind of lame pop things whatever was on the radio Kraftwerk was obviously not on the radio so yeah so I I ended up 
that was in, I guess that was Kraftwerk's Autobahn's 1984-ish. Is that right? So I would be about 13 or 14, depending on what month it came out in. And then I went, you know, I was interested in that, so I got Computer World, and I was like, ooh, this is great. Um, you know, I liked the kind of throwback graphics. Well, I guess at that time they weren't throwback. <laughs> uh, yeah, kind of everything looked like that. But, um, yeah, it just, uh, you know, it's kind of me hearing electronic music, electronic dance music, and... You know, I was fascinated by the. The first thing I read about them was, oh, you know, that there. Some of it's actually when they go on tour, it's just robots. Like they don't actually appear. And so the whole idea of this illusion of performance was very interesting to me. Like they weren't stars; they were just German robot dudes. Yeah. I don't know. There's something very appealing about that to me at that time. And that kind of inspired me to not listen to anything with guitars. <laughs> so I was, after that, I was kind of like against guitars and drums. I wanted drum machines, synthesizers, and that kind of pushed me into that, that whole synth pop world, listening to that, you know, Depeche Mode and Soft Cell. And yeah, I just, I went crazy over it for a long time still am <laughs> so that's that i mean do you have any particular questions about the album i mean that, that's why i chose it i mean i still love it computer computer love is one of my absolute favorite songs yeah it's gorgeous yeah. that's a good wedding song <laughs> <laughs> good wedding song do you say yeah why not? actually the whole the second side is great home computer and it's more fun to compute i like all of those because they have a weird darkness mm. to them pocket calculator not so much it's not i would say it's my least favorite song on that album because all the rest has a kind of darkness to it oh i find pocket calculator really dark really yeah it's um because it's i don't there's a superficiality which feels so I'm doing a lot of reflection on how much I use my phone right now, and hearing that song gave me the chills. Um, oh, that's yeah. true. So that was the angle I was coming at. Okay. Yeah. Oh, that's true. Oh, okay, I'll have to re-listen and think about that. <laughs> but the, the the wedding song thing is a good point. I'm gonna I'm putting together a wedding playlist at the moment. Um, <laughs> Computer love, and it's like eight minutes long. So. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's a good it's a good song to play if. You have to go to the bathroom while you're teaching. One <laughs> <laughs> uh, one thing I I did want to ask about is, um, I mean, going back to your parents' record collection, have you ever asked them why these two records, Tangerine Dream and Kraftwerk, existed in the collection? You know, I think it's. I have not asked them that, but I think it's part of the whole disco thing because Autobahn was kind of like in that disco era and so there were a lot of disco-y records in the collection as well um, you know like Chic and stuff like that mm. and like er earlier earlier disco stuff so that, I think that's where that came in and why it didn't continue after that <laughs> you know I don't I'm you know maybe they bought Radioactivity and were like ooh this is this is a downer you know <laughs> Um, but yeah, I mean, those, those three albums, uh, Radioactivity, 
man, machine, and computer world. Those are my the core group that I I love. I think that's most people. So, and I, and I, I don't like the mix, for example. <laughs> I won't go into that. But um, so so that's where that that's that's where that all came from. You mentioned that it drove you into drum machine synthesizers. Um, so were you generating music on the back of getting heavily into Kraftwerk and other such uh, artists? <laughs> yeah, sure. Um, I did the first the first keyboard I got, I think, was a Yamaha DX100, which I still have recordings from, which actually were used in Pink Courtesy Phone nice. on, on track. So like weird little, you know, things that I recorded on tape somewhere. Um, so I did have that. I did play along to my Depeche Mode records and, you know, I can play pocket calculator on the synthesizer and all that. keyboard at a time i would trade it in like once i got that first one i would trade it in and then you know if i got some money from my grandparents or something i would try and buy a larger one you know or like a better one or so i was always interested in that and um it wasn't until i guess around 88 or 87 i'm not sure mm-hmm. where i started to listen to stuff that was even weirder because I had a friend who had an older brother and he listened to really weird music. <laughs> he listened to Nurse with Wound and White House and Sylvia France and John Duncan and the Halford Trio, things like that. So that that's my next progression. And um, yeah. the keyboards the keyboards reflected it like how I was using the keyboards reflected into that. Because at that point, I learned about loops. Like, I learned about thinking about loops and, you know, Brian Eno, things like that. Like, a song doesn't have to be rhythmic. It doesn't have to be, you know, chorus, verse, chorus, verse, chorus to fade, you know, or, or whatever. And so that's that's kind of where my listing shifted. Do you want can I say the next one? I think it's the perfect time. The next album that, that I chose was Shadow Thief of the Sun by Sophia France, which is a huge, huge influence on me and the way I was listening to things. Um, I was also getting into design at that point and fascinated by the packaging design of Soviet France. Because at that time, you could go to a record store. Let's say I, I would go to Tower Records, and I would go to the import section, you know, because who wants a boring old American pressing of something? <laughs> I went to the I went to the import section, and it was just all this strange stuff, and you know, all these beautiful packagings for 4AD, and you know, you could buy something with a good album cover, like a beautiful hypnotic, weird, mysterious album cover, and usually it was good, hypnotic, mysterious, and weird. So 
that's how I kind of went into the Soviet France is all these packaging. I was like, I have to have all of these. These are amazing. And I would save up to buy the next one. And then there was always a new one. You know, it's like, wow, this album's in burlap. This is in metal. What, what is this? You know, kind of, <laughs> it kind of blew my mind. You know, there was no internet. So it was just kind of like, you just reached out and grabbed whatever you could. And it's not like I could, at the record store, I couldn't listen to these things. So it was really, a leap of faith, let's put it that way. But yeah, that kind of allowed me to see a different way of making music using sounds. Like it wasn't, it wasn't keyboards. It wasn't discernible. It wasn't pocket calculator. That's for sure. <laughs> did you? Was, <laughs> did, did you like it instantly? What, what yes. was the you did? I've said this before in many interviews, but when I was a kid, I really loved listening to air conditioners, and I really loved listening to the refrigerator. Right, yeah. Like, putting my ear up to the refrigerator in our kitchen, because we sat at dinner in the kitchen, and I was always up against the refrigerator. So <laughs> waiting for dinner, I would put my ear against the refrigerator and <laughs> listen to it. And so... When I once got a review that said, that, you know, I could make this with my refrigerator, <laughs> I was like, I'm done. That's, that's the best review ever. Taking so, you full circle, yeah. But if you think about that, you know, it was this kind of, these kind of sounds that, you know, there wasn't a beginning an end, or an end. So that, kind, that was my introduction to drone music, was my refrigerator. <laughs> it wasn't one of the greats, it was a refrigerator. So that, that kind of... Yeah, I was just very fascinated by it. It was very mysterious. You know, things like the Hafler Trio, where it was just this completely confusing, weird journey. And that's all these things were kind of like a journey. They weren't about listening to a song, you know, and here's the beginning and here's the end. And here's the, here's the musicality that happens, the structure that happens. They were kind of seemed structuralist. So I, that was really fascinating to me, listening to them. I just got lost in it all. So that's where my kind of listening shifted. I started to make work, which I actually released. It's available digitally on my band camp. It's like three or four hours of tape, you know, things I did recorded to tape with a synthesizer or two that are just not, like it's just kind of droney and weird. And that was from like nine, 1990 to 93, I think. Hmm. And then I actually stopped making music because I felt like I didn't really have anything to say. Like I didn't, I was like, well, this, all this stuff is so, I'm finding all this great music. I really don't have anything to add. And that was, so I stopped in 92 or 93 and then started back up in 1997, which leads us to the next album. If you want me to, talk about that next yeah well before we do i just wanted to ask um why shadow thief of the sun you said you mentioned you bought a lot of these very beautiful import releases and i read somewhere i mean i don't know whether it came out in another edition but i read this very um uh, gushing um tribute to the way they did their packaging and then there was a line that was like Oh, disappointingly, Shadow Thief of the Sun just came out in a jewel case. Oh, that's true. That yeah. is true. But I still think it's a beautiful... I'm looking at it right now. Ah. It's, it's, I still think it's very beautiful. But it, yeah, I guess that was the first one that didn't... 
have like an elaborate package. That's the, that is the first one. I I think I could be wrong. I'm not going to be a, pretend to be an expert on any of this. <laughs> it's the first album that was CD only. Like it was before. Yeah, I guess it must have been. Was that? It was 19. Let's look in the package now. <laughs> 1990. Yeah. So that came out right when I was my first year in college. I mean, I guess in comparison to the rest of them, it was, you know, I guess people would cry a little bit (laughs) because it's not. But I mean, that's when CDs really started to catch on. And there was a period where I remember going, I actually picked up a lot of music at that time that was when Tower Records was getting rid of all their vinyl. So their entire import section was like 50% off. Oh, wow. So I was just like, okay, this looks cool. Whatever. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. But um, yeah, I mean, I don't really think of... It's interesting how obsessed I was with the packaging and how kind of little I think about packaging now. Because... I buy lots of things that are digital. Hmm. I'm much more concerned about what the work is like, which I think is a good thing. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, there are still people, well, I don't listen to that because it's not on vinyl. And I'm like, well, then you're missing out. <laughs> oh, I won't listen to that because it's only digital. Well, then you're missing out. <laughs> There's a lot of experiences that you miss out if you, you know, you set parameters like that. Hmm. So yeah, totally. I also, as well, like I guess it feels like something that overlooks the intrinsic. I, I don't know the artistic decision making that can often go into someone's decision to release via a, th- a certain format and dissociate from physicality for you know some kind of creative intent. I mean, that's why I didn't like vinyl is because it was limiting. Mm. Sonically, it was limiting, and you know, for the work that I was doing when. Early on, it was, you know, it's not really great for stuff with a lot of silence. That's for sure, you know. <laughs> or really, really low frequencies, or really, really high frequencies, and you're also limited by time. And I, I hate when there's an album that's like two LPs but three sides. It just, I just put it on CD, <laughs> or, or just don't put it. I just put it on digital or, or whatever. You know, a lot of things ended up being you know, short, like there could have been works that were really, really amazing, but they ended up being very, very short because they had to be on an LP. Anyway, time constraints. Now you, now you can release a three hour thing or, you know, with, with Terry Templates, you can release a 22 hour thing or, you know, there's lots of options. So whatever, whatever medium works best for your work is how you should release it. Just as an aside, so I put out something on Adam Barringer's champion version recently and I've never done vinyl before and I sent him the tracks and he was like, No, they're too long. They they won't fit. Yeah. We're gonna have to do something with them and I was like, Oh shit. Because 'Cause I'd never done that before, you know, and work with vinyl and oh man. Yeah, it's like you think of how you know, what should this what should this piece be? Rather than, oh well, okay, I have twenty minutes to ah, use yeah. in the space yeah it can get it can be frustrating it's funny i went back to when i was reissuing a ravishment mirror the on two lps uh through thought forms in the uk that just that was in september 
and it actually fit really well because I had two more extra pieces to put on it. But then I did have to like cut one piece in half and put it on the other side. And, you know, and then I went back and looked at description of problem by paying courtesy fun. And I'm like, Oh wait, this actually works perfectly on two LPs. So maybe in the future, but that, you know, it's just a happenstance like that. Like if you have one piece that's 35 minutes long, you know, it's going to be like Rubicon by Tangerine Dream. You're going to have to put on one side and then the other. Hmm. could talk about that forever <laughs> <laughs> me too um, one final question on that Shadow Thief record is why did you pick that record in particular because I guess it was therefore based on the material rather than the packaging what is it about that record in particular that makes it stand out for you I mean I just really love it I think it's a, a beautiful kind of summation of what they were doing and yeah, I guess it's do they consider it like a mid-period? Like, I also love... The other one I was considering was... Uh, I'm probably going to say it wrong. Monomiche? Monomiche? I don't know. But I think that was 1983. Maybe that's another one of my favorites. Mm. But I was just trying to think of... I can't remember what the first Soviet France album was that I bought. But I know this one just made a, a big impression on me. Maybe because I was getting into CDs at that point. So I think I got a CD player in like 1989. Right. So this would have been right around that time. There, there's a weird, I don't know, there's a deepness to this one, which kind of reminds me of, of Monomiche that I liked. Because there was a very particular sound of Soviet fronts that I liked, and it tended to be the longer pieces that were on the different albums. And this was kind of like they were all like that. I don't know. I also like the samples, the vocal samples that are on this one. Yeah. So that could be part of it. The two pieces I love, I love the opening piece, the Silver Gate, but then In My Secrecy, I Was Real and Feel the Warmth are two pieces that I absolutely love. Like if I made a mixtape, that would be on all of them, you know, like at that time. Actually, one thing I noticed this today, just because I was kind of collating all of my listening in advance of this podcast is the use of kind of stereo delay on this record where it kind of parries back and forth mm -hmm. as i went to that and then through to the new pink courtesy phone and in fact previous records as well i've heard by the project there is also a it feels like often that's used to the same sort of effect or at least for me personally it, it has that i don't know hovering kind of time suspension element to it i mean is there do you think there's an element of soviet france in what you're doing with pink courtesy phone definitely but people never point that out you're probably the first person <laughs> to point that out really? <laughs> yeah i know i mean everyone always says like angelo badalamenti and the caretaker blaine things like that hmm. but i think it's because that's more because of like that dark romance but i think the way it's constructed is yeah, I guess in a way it's more like this album. Hmm. Good point, Jack. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I wanted to hear. <laughs> um, yeah, I need a lot of validation. Um, so... <laughs> Don't we all? <laughs> Thank you.
So, um, albums three and four, I guess. I, I imagine you'll want to talk about these in the you know, context of a one narrative, but uh, if you'd yeah. like to introduce them and tell me why they're important to you. Well, I'll introduce the first album. They came from the same place. It was a place called Go Compact Discs and Records, which was in Arlington, where I, Virginia, where I was living at the time. And they had a great buyer for electronic music and experimental music. So there was a, this was when I started getting into, I guess this is around 95. To me, this is post my interest in techno and kind of post my in, interest in industrial, like, you know, skinny puppy type stuff. Like, I, that's what I was DJing. But I was really, you know, I really loved like experimental music. So I was listening to that too. But of course, I wasn't, you know, playing that at a bar or a club or whatever. Um, and so I was, this is around the time of, I hate this term so much, IDM, intelligent dance music. <laughs> um, people still use it, so I'll use it too. <sighs> but it was around that time where that stuff was coming out. There was a lot of drum and bass that was really interesting. It was a much more experimental take on electronic music. Like techno was just not. You know, I'm talking about like Wars of Acid and stuff like that. Like all, you know, just crowd pleasers. And, the, you know, I was like kind of going towards things that were not crowd pleasers. And I go through the, the racks and I'm in the section, you know, the, the letter P. And here's this blue album in a plastic sleeve and it says Panasonic on it. And I'm like, what? Why is there a. <laughs> I thought this was like a, a stereo demonstration record. Tester. <laughs> <laughs> To test your CD player, you know, to make sure it was at the right speed or working correctly or whatever. And I was like, what is this? Yeah. So I took it over to the listening station and I just, I fell in love with it. I was like, this is the music of the future. I really, I did. I thought that. So, um, so I got, it was Vacuo, the first album by Panasonic. And... That was in 1995, and the, sec the second album that goes in conjunction with this, which also came from the same store, was when, and it was actually recorded in the same time period, but it was in 1997, it's uh, Phyllis, uh, the album Tetra by Phyllis, which is Mika Vanyo, um, may he rest in peace. And uh, this was like a more extreme version of Vacchio to me, like it was like stripping it all down. And I have to open. I have to open my little archival resealable sleeve to look at this. <laughs> wow, I wonder what that was. Uh, and the eighth track, which is oh god, I don't know how to pronounce this, Anxiolity, which is a about a thirteen minute piece, just blows my mind. And that was really these two albums inspired me to start making work again because I felt like this is resonating with me. And so I ended up starting making electronic music again. Um, so I do credit these and other albums, you know, going on at the time that at the same time I found Ryoji Akita, um, Carson Nikolai's first album came out. So we're, it was like all these things started happening at the same time. Like I was really interested in making music again. And I was like, I, I just want something clean. I want to make something clean and crisp and, you know, and then I start hearing these things. I'm like, oh my God, there's other people that are interested in this because I was doing minimalist paintings at the time. Like that was my thing. I was a painter. So 
yeah, it just kind of went from there. Like the first album I I did, a, a boyfriend of mine at the time was like, well, if you want to make electronic music, why don't you just start using a computer? Because I just, I got, I had a, a computer at home, you know, before you, well, most people didn't have a good computer at home. So I started um, with a shareware, uh, I forgot, it was called like Sound or something like, <laughs> like Sound sound maker or something like that um it was free software i think my first four albums were made using that and later on i guess a couple of years later when i met rio jacketa and karsten nikolai we were all talking about music and software and being nerds and they were both like you know that's what we started using wow. so it's interesting that this shareware program kind of people were making similar work Maybe not the sounds were similar, but like thematically it was kind of similar with this weird little, you know, free software. I think you had to make $20 for it at one point. I still wish I had it. I think I was ta I talked to Carson Nikolai a couple of years ago and we were like, oh, remember that sound program? Yeah. He's like, I wish we still had that. I wish we could get it. You know, but it doesn't work on like any computer now. Yeah. You'd have to get like an, <laughs> you'd have to get like one of those old black, um, black, black, uh, what were they called? Pismos or something? I don't know. The, the Apple laptops. Right. They're kind of like a black clamshell. They're really ugly. It, that was the last one it worked on, I think. <laughs> wow. So, yeah, this was, so these two albums kind of, along with other music that was being made at that time, kind of shifted me into listening in, I guess, listening in a different way. I just felt like this. I was writing music reviews at the time and I described the album Tetra as what was it? lounge music for fluorescent light tubes or something like that. Like, you know, <laughs> party music for fluorescent light tubes. It, it was just had this weird, it just sounded so futuristic to me. And in a way that kind of work harkened back to craft work to me. Like that sounded so new and different and crisp and, future and so is that that kind of thing and like so you know the soviet front stuff for example which i was talking about like that didn't feel future that felt it like that felt like it was it was dug up somewhere like it was like an archaeological dig or something like a sonic archaeological dig hmm. does that make sense i don't know that's a really weird illusion. yeah no it does i mean as you were about to say your answer I was thinking that it sounds like it stands separate from time, but I guess it's a similar idea in that it's... Yeah, it's otherworldly. Like, yeah. it doesn't sound... It doesn't sound like it's from anywhere. Hmm. Yeah. No, that absolutely makes sense. In that way, it's timeless. But I think it's also that the way it's not constructed in, you know, a song-based thing, that, that makes things feel kind of timeless. Not, not in the sense of, you know, durational time you mentioned when you were djing and you were gravitating away from like the crowd pleasers what qualities were you looking for or what was it that was appealing to you about the stuff that didn't i guess satiate crowd expectation well my kind of motto and it doesn't it doesn't necessarily always work for every place you dj at um is don't give them 
don't give them what they want to hear. Give them what they don't know they want to hear. Uh-huh. You know, that I think it works in a lot of situations. But although the other night at, at my night procedure, this guy was like, you need to play all 90s hip hop now. <laughs> like, <laughs> what? Okay. What? Very interesting. There's always going to be that person that thinks you're, you know, that they can talk to you like your Siri, you know, Siri play <laughs> 90s hip hop. Um, yeah. I think that when I would go to things where DJs were, all I was interested in was hearing something new. Like I didn't want to hear what was, what I had. Mm. I wanted to hear something. I'm like, what is this? You know, there was no Shazam. So you had to go talk to the DJ, which is always, you know, when you're younger is terrifying mm. at that time, ask them what this is. And they're either going to tell you, you know, Oh, you're stupid. Or ideally they will be just as excited about the music as you are and tell you what it is and want you to, you know, share in that. So I found a lot of amazing stuff through going out to, to clubs and um, listening to different music. Cause I would go to, you know, like techno clubs and industrial clubs and, everything in between. I was just, I was interested in music at that, that time. Not to say that I'm not now. That's <laughs> bad. Yeah. Does that answer? I can't remember what the question was. No, me neither. Oh no, it was about, um, <laughs> crowd. It was about crowd pleases and your gravitation away from that. So yeah, it absolutely, absolutely does. I think the, the idea of exploration hmm. is what makes me want to go away from clout. I, I love a good, a good pop song. Don't get me wrong. But I'm just, there's something about things that take me somewhere else that I'm, I've just always been interested in. The inquisitive mind, I don't know, helps keep you sane. Totally. <laughs> but how does that play out in practice if you're a DJ? I mean, I don't know. What was the crowd split like? Because as you say, there's certain people who have certain wants of you when they, you know, you're basically their music I mean, butler in their eyes, but, um, yeah, I mean, there's like, there's an asshole at every party. So yeah. <laughs> wherever you go. Yeah. So there's no, there's no accounting for that. Um, that's always going to happen, but like, how do I choose what to play or no? I mean, I mean, when you, uh, playing stuff that adheres to your, Motto of give them what they don't want to hear. I mean, I I know that from experience. No, don't. No, it's not. Don't give them what they don't want to hear. It's what they oh, don't no, know want to hear. <laughs> sorry, I no. did hear it. There right. are those DJs that will play what you do not want to hear, and uh, they're out there too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, so uh, I I'm just intrigued as to how that plays out in in practice because I guess it's I don't know. Is it a difficult one to call? when you think like okay this is going to be something that's going to really spark an interest in a lot of people is it easy to make that judgment as to you know something that's going to spark someone's interest as opposed to something that someone's going to be find completely alienating in that context i don't know i mean for example i really haven't done any kind of dj sets in a long time where i am trying to make people dance Hmm. Like trying to make people dance and keeping them dancing, because that's that's to me that's the hardest thing to do. Is to, you know because I've DJed in like rave settings or you know techno club settings, whatever you want to call it, um, 
and keeping people dancing is a very tenuous uh, path. I, I did this one thing that was, there was a huge club in Washington, D.C. We ended up, my, my friends and I that did this night got invited to do an event on the, ex, like on the patio. That's where you put the weird people usually. You know, they put them on the patio of the club. <laughs> so we were out, we were outside. It was a really nice night. It also ended up being the last night of the entire of the club entirely because it got busted by the armed services or something for drug deal. I don't know. Oh wow! But I, you know, people were dancing and we had them, we had them dancing and stuff. We were playing a lot of tech housey kind of stuff, and then I was, you know, dropping in Panasonic and or Panasonic at the time and. What is that record? It's by the user Symphony for Dot Matrix Printers. I played that and I was like, okay, here we go. Like, who's going to be like, this sucks or, or whatever. Yeah. And people were breakdancing to it. <laughs> like, spinning around on their heads and dancing to that. Like, the sound of Dot Matrix Printers. So I'm like, okay. <laughs> my, work here, my work here is done. I don't know. But I mean, I think when I when I do the night now that I do with uh, Alejandro Cohen and Maria Minerva, we're just playing stuff that we like, you know. And it's it's a mix, it's a broad mix of stuff. Most of the stuff I do is you know kind of song based stuff, electronic music. But it's never it's never anything real super extreme because you know it's we're in public. I don't know. It's you know I, the one I would listen to at home. I would not necessarily play there at a bar. Yeah, you know people have expectations, so it's a fine line. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, when I'm thinking of like what to play next, it's really about okay, what goes with this? What transition works with this? What kind of kind of sounds go with this? Or what would be really weird with this? There's also that you know. It's, you have to think of it in the same way that if you're constructing. Uh, some kind of soundtrack, like a narrative soundtrack. It's like, how does this progress? How does it build? How does it crescendo? How does it plateau? How does it, you know, come bottom out and come back up? And so I, I think of it in the same way. I probably too, put too much thought into it and no one else is getting, <laughs> you know, <laughs> the list audience is probably not getting as much out of it as I'm thinking, like, oh, they're really going to, oh, they're going to think this is really a great combination of <laughs> dem- choices of subject matter in these two songs. Like, no, no one's going to care. <laughs> <laughs> is that a way of also, um, the way of constructing a narrative? I mean, is that a way of approaching as well as some, st- I don't know, like the edges of obscurity to sort of drip it in over the course of a few pieces to the point where you know, suddenly you put something on and they're like, wait, what? This is just a bass yeah, drum. And you, you put, you, yeah, and you put, something, you put something really strange on and you'd be surprised at the people that come up and they're like, what is this? And I'm thinking, oh God, they're going to be like, why are you playing this? Go away. You know? And they're actually like, this is, I've never heard anything like this. Like someone actually came up a couple months ago and was like, what is this? I've never heard anything like this before. Wow. And I want to hear more of it. And I'm like, wow, okay. That must be so cool. Yeah, <laughs> it's not. You know, I, I'm not going to say that happens all the time because it doesn't. But be open about music. There's just there's so much of it, and you're never going to know all of it.
I mean, that feels like a, a wonderful conclusion, really, doesn't it? But um, I'm going to ruin it because I had another question, but... Um, <laughs> <laughs> Thank you and goodbye. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just hang up now. Um, yeah. <laughs> I, I'm intrigued because, obviously, these three records you've referred to in terms of um, putting you you on a certain path or in a certain mindset with regards to creation and I don't know whether there would be anything beyond this or whether it was curbed by the limitation of you know three or four records but if there was to be like a, a, a next step and something that impressed upon the way in which you make music after this time you know the mid 90s I guess do you have any idea what that would be? Oh, I'd have to, I'd have to think about that. <laughs> no, right now. <laughs> right now. Well, actually, you know, I would, I, I would say the next progression after that would be things like Morton Feldman, Toro Takamitsu, like going back to. Oh. I, I don't like the term classical music because it just seems weird because it's not necessarily classical, hmm. like. 20th century composers, I would say, and that includes things like electroacoustic stuff. I think that would have been the next kind of reflecting point for me, would be that, that kind of stuff. And I'm still digging around for that kind of stuff because, you know, reissues come out all the time of these obscure private label things, and you're like, oh my God, this sounds like what I was doing 30 years after this came out. <laughs> I mean, you're like Elaine Radique, things like that, like mm. just really reflecting into composers and artists that were doing doing work that may have not, was recognized at the time, but then somehow got maybe put in the backs of people's minds, like it wasn't always present. I don't know. There's just so many weird records that come out now that are reissued. And you're like, what? This is in 1967? <laughs> what you know <laughs> i don't even know how they could have made this like <laughs> yeah it's like beyond comprehension um but I, I think i think that that kind of stuff um i'm still digging back into more easy listening stuff just because i now have i have a turntable so now i'm like buying records from the thrift store again and finding more things oh wow I mean, there's just been so much stuff that I would say in the two th in the, from 2000 onwards has just been amazing. There's just too many things. I don't know. I can't. <laughs> I would say that was the next big chunk of music. Yeah. And that really, <clears throat> that kind of stuff influenced kind of the next stage of my work. Like Morton Feldman and Tor Takamitsu's use of space and silence. Um, Toshio, Hos I think it's Toshio Hosokawa, another artist that I found when I was in Japan, more um, kind of 20th century composer, um, classical music, I don't know what they want to call it, but that really dealt with a lot of space. Space as in like, just, you know, stretched out time. The music that stretches time, I think that was kind of the stuff that I went to next. But through all the time, you know, of listening to music, I still go back to these other things. It's not like I just went through these. You know, you go through very specific phases of listening. Hmm. 
there's a lot of stuff that doesn't really hold up and I'm not going to mention those, but <laughs> within different genres, you know, you go back and you and you're like, Oh, I really liked this. Like, it's a little, <laughs> <laughs> like it doesn't quite, it doesn't quite hold up or like very specific things, very specific tracks hold up, but I still go back to all these artists and listen to them. I mean, Mika Vanya was a, a huge influence. I, Bought everything he he ever created, and I'm just really sad that he's gone, because I feel like there's so much more he he would have made, because he's such a force in this in electronic music in in different variants of electronic music, you know, within the kind of techno, experimental, electroacoustic. I mean, just incredibly significant to all these little these different aspects i mean i was listening to duran duran the other day so you know so you're listening to what duran duran oh, right. the other day. It's like <laughs> three albums of duran duran i don't know why but yeah it's and things like that that first album so good mm. holds up you know yeah don't be ashamed of anything you listen to let's put it that way yeah <laughs> yeah uh, it's weird though isn't it because i think that there's um and I often question this in myself, where there's things that I've listened to ages ago and, I don't know, got into ages ago and they're still with me and all the other stuff has fallen away. Whether yeah. there was something extra that was keeping that music by or whether that initial instinct was actually just the same across everything that I was listening to, whether it was destined to stick with me or not. I'm not really sure what my point is there, but there's something there that I'm trying to grasp at about... Do you think about nostalgia? Because I think about that, like, why do people listen to very specific music? Is it because of a nostalgia from that period of that time of an event that happened? You know, like, this song reminds me of something. Mm. Like, I'm not a big, for example, we, the other night we went to go see um, Call Me By My Name, the, that new film that just came out. And one of the key scenes, and it's, I think it's used twice in scenes, is there is the use of Love My Way by Psychedelic Furs. Hmm. I never got into Psychedelic Furs, but as soon as that song played in that film, I was transported. Like, I was like, oh, oh my God. I remember this. I remember this time. I like, it was like, hearkened to a specific moment in my life. So I think that's, that's part of it. But I normally wouldn't go out of my way to like, listen to that. I think the thing I find really interesting is that I think that there's still a residue of the sensation of, I think particularly in my early teens, where that feeling of, oh, what the fuck is this? And and having to, um, you know, make adjustments to your frame of reference in order to fit something in and the excitement of having to do that, the residue of that is carried through to present tense listening experiences. You know, there's music that if I heard now for the first time I would not even bother to listen to it ever again it would do very little to illuminate my senses but when it's imbued with that that very instantaneous sense of gosh I remember the excitement when this was the I don't know heaviest rock song I'd ever heard or (laughs) do you know it's some kind of resonance it's like a resonance that Mm stays with you yeah i mean i the other night when um alejandro cohen of, of dub lab was djing at our night procedure 
he played Six Six Sputnik. And I was like, I went up to him. And I was like, oh my God, you know, I love Six Six Sputnik. <laughs> and he was like, I love, I love them too. <laughs> so it was, it was this moment where we both kind of geeked out about it. And I was just like, I just want to go home and listen to all Six Six Sputnik right now. Oh, wow. Like it was, it was very strange. Like, but it was, it was, and it wasn't even a song that I'm like a super big fan of, but it was like, oh, it's that, it's that sound of that moment in time. Hmm. So I'm, I'm looking at it right now because it's right next to the psychedelic first <laughs> that I downloaded. So yeah, there's just so much music out there. Yeah. This is by far, this is by far, it, it, it's hard to, if I, I had to do this before when someone asked me about albums and I kind of whittled it down to like, I think it was like six or seven, but then to whittle it down to these three, three and a half, four, um, (laughs) was much harder because I was also trying to think of what, in terms of a conversation, what, what leads to what. Thank you, Richard, so much. This has been excellent. It's been so nice chatting to you and, um, like really illuminating for me having listened to your music now for quite some years to, to, um, I don't know, to learn, you know, about your own lineage as an artist to some extent, that's been really great for me. So thank you. These, these little, you can put these little push pins in my, my history. Yeah. <laughs> of, of my, what it all means. Well, thank you for having me. I enjoyed talking about this. If people want to go and listen to your music or find out what you're up to, um, where should they go? Well, they can go to Bandcamp and search my name. It's richardchartier.bandcamp.com. Or you can go to my label, Line, lineimprint.bandcamp.com, and you can listen to things and see if you like them. And sometimes there's, you know, free, pay what you want, name your price type things, and they can get a kind of a broad spectrum of, of what I've been doing as under Richard Chartier and as Pink Courtesy Phone and other collaborative works. Thank you once again, Richard, and to everyone listening. I will see you next time. 